755 is real with David O'Brien and Eric O'Flaherty. Welcome, welcome. 755 is real. Another episode here at Spring Training. And hey, before we get started, my co-host Eric O'Flaherty, obviously the former Braves reliever, part of the old Ventpearl trio with Johnny Venters and Craig Kimbrell. Eric, uh, I had a question for you. I don't know if you saw this, uh, the guy directed, I think at both of us, you might have seen it on Twitter. It was from a Wellington Lazardo in the Dominican Republic. I assume that's his name. He said, uh, he said that he wanted to know. Yeah, it is a great name. That's a, that's like a race car driver name, maybe, or a boxer or an actor. He said he wanted to know how hard it is for a pitcher to learn a pitch from another pitcher. In other words, how, as he put it, how hard would it be for you to learn Tom Glavin's circle change? Does the body have it, have it, uh, body type have to uh, play on this? You know, guys, velo maybe, or the mechanics. Uh, and I'm kind of interested in that too. Well, all that stuff matters. You know, the, the body type, arm slot, mechanics, and mindset, and everything. I mean, it's a tough question. Uh, but the thing is, it's, it's just, it's different for everybody. You know, some guys, you could show them a grip and they could pick it up like that. Just show them the grip. They yeah. go throw it a few times. It feels good. They got it. And they'll take it into right. a game that night. Uh, other guys couldn't even learn their grip from last year if they were trying to teach themselves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just, I'm serious, man. Baseball, right. baseball's like that. So uh, really what, what you pick up on is, is their thought behind it. The grip does matter, but it's, it's not everything. It's, it's more about what they're thinking, you know, what, what they're visualizing when they throw it, um, how they want the ball coming off their fingers, uh, just different, just, you know, where they want their arm at when they want to release it. Um, so you're, you're kind of passing on just as much, uh, of a mindset more than a grip. Uh, it's, you know, veteran players. Yeah. Just just to back up real quick, sorry to interrupt you. That it makes sense because you were just talking. I think some people don't understand how a guy who'll have a really good curveball changeup all of a sudden he seems like he gets away from that, like Newcomb. You know, yeah. all of a sudden he's not throwing one of his best pitches. And I think most people, most of us laymen who aren't pitchers, don't understand why you would get away from a pitch that's really good for you. But you're saying sometimes a you guy just it. either for yeah, and explain how yeah. that happens. But then you get back into. I'm sorry. Well, it's, that's kind of where I was going. Is it, it's it's yeah. a mindset and a grip, and and just you know your mechanics play into it too. But um, you know, veteran players they've had a lot more time to perfect and master their craft, so they're usually a lot better at communicating all the things that can go wrong with a pitch. Because you'll kind of you'll learn, you know, like what do I tend to do wrong on my slider? If I pull off it, this is how it, the ball flight looks like. If if I stay through it and I, and I keep my momentum going directly toward the plate, you know, maybe it breaks smaller, but this is a tighter, better slider. You know, little things like that. So right. um, the, the veterans are, are usually pretty good at communicating that stuff and being aware of what they tend to do wrong and the, all those bad habits uh, that would be associated with that grip. So um, it's just little things like that, that they can kind of, uh, just streamline the process of helping you learn a new pitch. So like Hamels, if he was going to pass his change up on could say something like, you know, here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to over pronate or you don't want to try to, you don't want to try to see too much movement because that's not quality movement. Um, just little things like that. And it's, it's not that young players can't pass things on, you know, sometimes they're better at it cause they keep it so simple and they, and they haven't, you know, learned all the things to do wrong. And, and stuff like that. But um, it's usually just 
the veteran is able to streamline that and kind of skip some of the common mistakes and show you, you know, if you're gripping the ball too tight or trying to make it do too much. Um, you know, like if, if I was a coach, I'm not sure I'd be the best at video analysis and mechanics and all that, but I feel like I could teach anybody a breaking ball because, because uh-huh. I'm passionate about the thought process behind the breaking ball, what I'm thinking, um, how I want it leaving my hand, what I'm trying to do. I have a thousand different visuals I've used. Um, and, and I feel like I can really just paint that picture to kind of pass along the mindset and aggressiveness of my breaking ball to a young player with, with the grip involved too. Um, but yeah, it's it's just little stuff like that that um, I could probably teach him my sinker too. But that pitch tore my arm up, so I don't necessarily want to pass that on. Yeah. You right. know, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 really it's really interesting thing for me, and that's why that's a tough question because it's it's kind of every single player um, is different, and some guys like Chris Medlin, I could never throw his change up. He uh-huh. he grabbed his change. You'd ask him because everybody wanted to throw his change up that year. I think right. it was 2012. He was striking everybody out. I'd ask him, I'd say, you know, how do you throw that thing? And I'd hold the ball out for him. And he gripped his changeup so light he could barely take the ball out of your hand. You know, he'd just like grab it with his fingertips and just barely lift it. And he held the ball so loose in his hand. Um, but that was something that he was really one of the rare guys that was capable of gripping the ball that lightly and just flicking his wrist like that and throwing the ball. Yeah. And that's why it spun so much. And it, and it, it was so slow compared to his fastball was the way he gripped it and did it. And that was something that I could never, I mean, we could have spent the last six years working on that. And Chris couldn't have passed that on to me. Uh, And there might be some other rookie that comes up and Chris tells him all his things and his mindset and how he grips it. And the guy picks it up in a day or two. So really it's, I mean, it's kind of random and, and it's, it's not a consistent thing, but um, it's it'll usually just be one key or one visual or, or one hand position or, or like a guy saying, I try to throw my curveball with my thumb to the sky and a light bulb will just go off for a young player mm-hmm. and they'll go out and they'll try it and all of a sudden just that thought right there uh, combined with the grip the guy uses, they might pick the pitch up and use it for the rest of their career. It's amazing that there, uh, uh, with all the years that baseball's been played, you still hear a guy come along and have a pitch that seems like nobody's thrown it or nobody's thrown it successfully. I remember like AJ Burnett started throwing something he called a knuckle curve. And at the time you didn't hear about anybody else throwing it. And I probably did. They might've called it something else, but you know, you hear these different things like, uh, uh, well, the circle change, obviously, but there's others too, uh, you know, slurves and, and, and a combination, or is it a curve or a slider? Uh, therefore it's a slurve, but the, 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 the position of the fingers, you would have thought by now, that everything would have been tried, but that's not the case. I mean, you still hear, you still hear of a guy like almost inventing a pitch, but that, I mean, you, you could throw the ball with your fingers in just so many different places on a pitch and with the pressure so different, you're talking about a change up. And I think for the average person, if they tried to throw that, it would feel so weird what you have to do to throw a change up. Yeah. It's just so much feel, you know, uh-huh. I could. I never really got the feel of a changeup, like I said, but I could throw seventy five thousand different breaking balls. Um, you know, as a kid, we used to have these Pizza Hut um, giveaway. It was a it was a foam bat and a foam ball, and these foam balls, man, you could make them break like seven feet. So what that did for you though is we'd play in our front yard, and and what that did for me is I would get to see the movement I was putting on the ball amplified. 
So then I got to learn and tinker and be able to put my hand in every position possible and just watch this huge drastic movement, you know, that you're not going to get with a baseball. But now I knew every angle I was putting on it. So if I wanted to make the ball do something, I just I practiced it a million times. And it's it's kind of like that, you know, with with baseball, too, is, you know, Mariano could show a thousand different guys his cutter. And I'm right. sure he did. And nobody's throwing that pitch because it's yeah. it's just it's it's the combination of his delivery hit the way he thinks about it his arm action his grip his mechanics everything combined created that pitch that um i don't think could be passed on to anyone i think a lot of guys can throw really good cutters but i don't know if anybody's ever going to throw mariano's cutter yeah he, and he threw it basically it was the only pitch he threw and everybody knew it was coming but they right. still couldn't hit it i mean that's just amazing that's why people were talking about Johnny Venner's sinker, because mm-hmm. Johnny could throw that pitch every pitch if he wanted to, and and nobody could hit it. Um, and a lot of times, you know, it's it's just something that I Johnny showed me how he threw his sinker, and I threw it and it cut because it just didn't work for my arm angle and my delivery. But mm-hmm. it, it's it's really weird, man. That's that's one of the coolest things about baseball is. Uh, somebody will come along every year that's just doing something nobody else can do and, and you can't really pass it on because it's it's such a it's a big puzzle to get to that point where the ball's doing what it's doing and and then the guy's just got to learn how to teach himself how to replicate that even if he can't really pass it on to anyone else and then you got a freak like Pedro Martinez who's double jointed in his in his in his yeah. elbows and his fingers were actually would do things that normal fingers wouldn't do so he could obviously do things that with a ball that other people probably couldn't do and would couldn't even try. Yeah, and that's you know that's kind of what neutralizes the field in baseball between just taking the most elite athletes is it's it's mm-hmm. such a skill game and there's so many little things that that make you who you are on a baseball field and and being different or having a different angle can really play for you versus just throwing 100 miles an hour. Why do some pitches come into vogue and then and, and, and for a while they everybody wants to throw that pitch and then it just goes out and you know it's like right now for instance you don't hear of anybody throwing uh, a fork ball a split right. finger but the, for a while like Smoltz you know was had a devastating splitter uh, was it so hard on the elbow that people got away from it or did hitters with the change in planes of their swing like adapt to that whether involuntarily or not. Well, like right now, it's it's not the best time to be a sinker baller guy, you know, mm-hmm. because of the, how the hitters have evolved their swing. Uh, it used to, for so many years, it was four seam, four seam, twelve six curveball was mm-hmm. was what a lot of guys were going to, and then people started hitting that. So then pitchers come up with cutters and sinkers and splitters and fork balls and stuff with kind of tight tight late depth to it, and you're getting all these ground ball pitchers. But now everybody's swinging up on the ball, and the guys that throw the four seams up in the zone and the curveballs are are tending to do really well again. So it's kind of a game of, you know, cat and mouse between the hitters and the pitchers. And hitters are going to develop their swing and and work on their swing to hit whatever popular pitch is, is happening. Like when the cutter, when guys mm-hmm. started throwing tons right. of cutters, maybe five, ten years ago, that took over the game for a while. And now you're seeing a lot of guys that can hit them. Um, but that's, you know, I think with the fork ball and the split, I think it's more of um, – it's more of just a health thing. A lot of guys are worried about their forearm um, throwing a splitter, and you can throw a changeup and get some similar movement. And you have to have a you know certain you got to have some big hands to throw a splitter, and right. so that limits who can throw it you know right off the yeah. bat. And then the health thing, it's just not it's just not in right now. But you know, it's, yeah, you got, you right now it's the four seam fastball. Right? Yeah, right now it's the four seam. Yeah, it's hard. 
and it's and that can be hard on you know your your flexor tendon and all that, but mm-hmm. uh, it's the four seam fastball right now. I mean, I've never in my in my life until I think it was last year I saw a catcher call a two o fastball up. You know, I you never see uh-huh. that right? right, and and I've seen catchers call two <laughs> right. o fastballs up in the zone last year, and and right. the catcher setting up for a high strike, which is something I'd never seen in my career and and now you're starting to see it happen more and more because of how the hitters have catered their swings to swing up and lift the ball and everything it's harder for them to get to the high fastball do you think the technology you know uh, uh all the stuff that driveline uses and and the pitchers that are starting to look at their their pitches in super slow motion and 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 the and the uh, rotation the spin rate do you think all that is helping guys develop into better pitchers, or is it still? Um, or would you, if you were coming along, would you like to have all the information possible? Do you think yeah. it would help you, or is there too much of it? Like there can it can get kind of an overload sometimes. I think mainly it's too much video if it's mechanics because stuff won't necessarily look the way it feels on on tape, and you can almost lose your visual by watching. You know, video is a different visual if you get too wrapped up in it. Um, you can kind of lose your mechanics by trying to look a certain way on on film or pick at something that doesn't look perfect on film, even though you felt great that day and, and everything went well. You know, it's easy to overanalyze. But as far as the the data, the rapsodo, the the spin rate, or all that type of stuff, I would have loved to have that. The slow motion of how the ball's leaving your hands, really. I mean, that stuff's awesome, and I think you're seeing why. I mean, I think you're seeing how effective it is just based on how how many hitters are striking out and and how hard the game's having to fight to keep offense in it, whether it's the balls or shrinking the strike zone. Um, it's it, pitchers are are they're always going to be ahead, but they have all these tools now. Like a guy like Adam Ottavino, um, he's changed his whole career with data, and and he's mm-hmm. he, he's got this ridiculous slider and, and sinker combo that he built. But they can use they can use basically a graph and a, a clock type of a setup to watch and make the two pitches completely um, be mirror images of each other. Instead of, you know, one of them has more of a uh, 11 to seven break. And one of them has like a nine to three, like across the zone. Now they're, they're matching up perfectly where they're just, it's the same pitch going two different ways and he could tunnel it and do all these different things. Um, It's, it's really interesting. And I think it's, I mean, I would have loved to have it. There was years I couldn't strike people out with my slider that I might've been able to fix it in, in a matter of, you know, two or three games versus a month. I think Trevor Bauer gives a lot of credit for his, you know, taking his game from being just a really good pitcher to being a great pitcher. I think he credits the technology for a lot of that because he's just in, in, in immersed himself in it. Yeah. Uh, and Verlander, when he went over to the Astros, he was one of the many pitchers that have gone over there and uh, benefited from not the trash can banging, but from the technology they yeah. had. With that. Well, Garrett Cole, um, too. That's what Garrett yeah, Cole did. Yeah, he stopped exactly. throwing his two-seamer as much and – he started throwing way more four seamers, and that's when he really took off and just started dominating when he went over there. And that's that's all data and, and stuff like that too. You know, have, which pitches you, you should really be throwing. Have you heard that the uh, you probably haven't seen this, but on the Braves backfields at the new place, and obviously the main field, they have the cameras with TrackMan, Rapsido, all that on every backfield now. Every backfield yeah. has that, so every so they team can does. watch it. Yeah, so they can like a guy's just throwing live BP or anything. They can every pitch they can get and then show that guy. You see, this is the pitch that we really. Here's what you were doing on this pitch and why. This is what you need to do. I mean, they do. They track every pitch now that a guy throws in a swing that a batter has during it, during uh, about live BP and workouts, whatever they want to do. 
Well, I'll tell you the best example uh, you can see of it is there's people with zero baseball experience, zero, zero base, like professional baseball experience that are getting hired into pitching coordinator jobs, right? It, right. That's insane. But that's right. how that's how valuable it is to be able to analyze and use this data and how big of a difference it's making. And it's right. not, you know, some team trying to save money. It's it's a team like the Dodgers. Yeah. A team like the Dodgers hired a guy I think yeah. is 25 years old to be their pitching coordinator that never even played Pro Bowl out of driveline here in Seattle. Um <laughs> it's it's insane, man. Wow. Like I would have wow. never believed yeah. that could happen. And I've I've worked with a lot of those guys when I was training there and my baseball knowledge compared to them is mm-hmm. is night like it's not even comparable like what I've, my experiences and everything I've been through but their ability to analyze this data analyze mm-hmm. the biomechanics the movements uh, and all that stuff you know it's it's at a point where that's almost more valuable than baseball experience in the game and and they can they can kind of make up for their lack of experience with all this this data and, and the knowledge they have now. And it's it's weird because there's so many coaches in baseball that are fighting this movement, and you just you got to yeah. get on board and and learn. Yeah, you know, of the major sports, baseball is so far ahead and unique in that in that aspect because I just can't see the same type of technology working not to the degree it does in baseball in the other sports i mean you might learn a better jump shot you know with uh with technology i'm sure it'll come around uh and guys are probably already doing it just with the movement when they when they set up those uh uh yeah and they show the, the how the musculature and the skeletal system is working on different movements and all that but not to the degree that baseball has with uh molding shaping pitches and swings and and uh you don't see that in football basketball and i'm i wouldn't think you'd see it in hockey so it's kind of unique and baseball is becoming more technolo- te- technologically based all the time yeah and it, golf i think is the one that would be yeah. comparable that, that you're sure. seeing a lot of it in but I don't know what you're going to get out of knowing your spin rate on your jump shot. You know, it, right, maybe, exactly. maybe, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that advanced in my knowledge of basketball where, where maybe it is really something that guys could watch some slow motion video form. of the ball, leaving their hand and, and whatnot. But uh, you know, those, I can't tell you if, if that would really matter, but the way that, yeah. you know, the way that analytics have changed basketball is just, they just told them to start shooting more threes. Yeah, exactly. It's just statistical you know, stuff. Yeah, approach, approach type of stuff. I don't know if yep. the mechanics could really benefit the same way no. you can in baseball. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a follow up question. Which of the pitchers that you were around during your career was best able to learn new pitches quickly or change the shape of movement of pitches, like within a game, and throw two or three different type of curveballs? And uh, I know. I would assume that anyone who pitched with Greg Maddox would say him in his peak years was that guy, but I know he was before your time in Atlanta. Was there a guy that really stood out in that regard to you? You mentioned Medley. Uh Levon Hernandez. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he yeah. could throw like a 50 mile an hour breaking ball for a strike, or right. he could he could do anything he wanted with the baseball. And that, that was his craft, his whole I mean, he never threw really right. hard. Uh he pops in my head. Sonny Gray pops in my head. Uh, but Sonny, Sonny would be a guy that you never knew if he was playing dumb or not, you know, cause he would, he would go <laughs> in and, and throw an inning and he'd throw like six cutters and the catcher would say, I didn't even know you threw a cutter. And he'd say, I just made it up. And, <laughs> and he, you know, his arm was, his arm was so alive and the ball just exploded out of his hand in a way that he could just be out there making pitches up and he'd throw a big curve ball. He'd throw, he could throw, you know, more of like a three quarter curve ball, slider, cutter, sinker. He could do anything you wanted with a baseball and. I'd say Medlin too. Medlin that year that 
he learned how to throw the, the front door two seamer to lefties. Um, he learned how to really move the ball around. Um, but there's a lot of guys like that, man. And it's, it's obviously Greg Maddox is the king of it, but it's, yeah. it's a fun art to watch and it's hard. It's not easy to do. You got free your Let's mind. See, it was 2012 when, uh, med I'm looking up his stats. Yeah. 10 and one. With a 1.57 ERA in 50 games, including 12 starts, he had 138 innings, struck out 120, and walked 23. And he the thing gave up was, 103 is that, hits. And everybody knew he was throwing that changeup, and every yeah. single time they were still early on it. You know that that was probably the hottest <laughs> run I've seen a starting pitcher go on. Dude, his whip that year was 0.913. His home runs per nine innings was 0.4. And his hits per nine innings was 6.7. And I don't even know if he started off the year that hot. Those are the numbers he ended up with. Whatever he was right. doing during that stretch is something I'd never seen. <laughs> when they moved him to the rotation, he was just Yeah, ridiculous. he took off. He won, he won now NL Pitcher of the Month. I think it was back-to-back months because nobody had done that in like in the last five years, including Kershaw. And that was Pete Kershaw. Yeah. And we all ask him how he threw that changeup, but I just, I couldn't grip the ball the way he did and, and, yeah. and have it just that relaxed of an arm and just flick it in there like that. And he could do it and he could do it with control. It's just a shame, man. You'd love to see what he could have done if he could have stayed healthy for like a 10 year career, you know, and pitching like yeah. even close to that, what he could have done. Yeah. And that's another uh, thing for me is a lot of times I think guys that, that can throw a pitch nobody else can throw. There's a reason. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's scary. Like Johnny Venter right. Sinker or Medlin's changeup, right. they're doing something with their arm that everyone else's body is telling them, don't do that, you're going to break, you know. Even a big stable guy like uh, Smoltzy who threw as hard as he did, you know, that fork ball, yeah. how much of that, how much did that have to do with his all the elbow problems that he encountered, you know. Yeah, or Josh Johnson, the dude from the Shoulder Marlins that used issues. to throw like yeah. ninety-seven oh, mile yeah. an hour cutters from, you know, the, it just anybody that's throwing a pitch that is nobody seeing or nobody can replicate them. You know, it, it just gives me caution now. Yeah. Okay, moving on to the current Braves. Wednesday at Bradenton, Soroka made a second start. He's one behind the other pitchers because uh, that mild adductor or groin is is commonly known strain early in camp. Uh, and he looked good, I thought, down at Bradenton, despite giving up three runs and two and two-thirds. Uh, pitching against a Pirates lineup that had five lefty hitters, three switch hitters, and only one righty hitter. Soroka said he wasn't surprised by the composition of that lineup, considering his splits last year in his terrific rookie year. He allowed a 282 average and a 331 OBP by lefty batters, compared to a puny 203 average and 256 OBPR righties. So it wasn't, a, and also wasn't the first time he faced a nearly all lefty lineup. He noted that against the twins last year, they had all lefties or switch hitters, except for Nelson Cruz uh, against them when they faced him. So, and he thinks it's going to become a lot more common this year because teams obviously are going to be aware of the, of the splits until he, you know, until he proves otherwise that it's worth putting, uh, you know, their, some of their better hitters in there, even if they are. Uh, righties yeah well for for me honestly that's that's one of those things that you look at as a good thing you know he's making the team (laughs) 
it's 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 yeah. not like he's not going to make the team. So in that sense, it's it's it really is a chance to work on something, and it and it's great when it's back to back, because a lot of times you'll face a lefty and you you're trying to get this pitch, you're trying to make this pitch, and then a righty gets in, and it almost you reset your sights a little bit, you know, because it's a different side hitter. You have your your pitches you want to throw to that side, and then the lefty gets back in there. So going back and forth sometimes can be tougher. Um, but that chance to just really work on it, if a guy, you know, say the first lefty just rips something in the gap, but he feels like he almost made that pitch, the next guy gets in and he can make that adjustment and try to make that pitch and kind of hold on to the feeling of making the pitch um, mm-hmm. and get that guy out. So it's it's one of those things, if you can take your ego out of it and you're not trying to make a team, it's it's the perfect scenario because you get to work on it. Yeah, I mean... And the guy's so mature beyond his years. He said it again yesterday. He was talking about, you know, he gave up uh he gave up a two run homer and it was like on the only he was working on uh he, he hung a, a two seamer just a little over the plate and gave up the homer when he was when he had a double play uh situation after getting already drawn uh inducing two double plays before that so he's trying so he's kind of trying for one for the first time when he did it yeah and left it over the plate and crushed it so it said it was kind of the the irony of that yeah and that's the thing you know that's you you wind up you wind up working on the four seamer and then it affects your other pitch right yeah and so that's the awesome thing about spring training and, and facing these guys is now he knows how he's he's also not just working on his four seamer, but he's working on going from his four seamer back to his two seamer. And those are the things that you get to work on when you get to keep facing, you know, a stacked lineup like that. Yeah. Oh, and I think I said all lefties. Obviously, I meant all righties because uh, righties are uh, uh, are lefties. Lefties. Yeah. They had. Yeah. They had. Why? What is? What is? Uh, with him. As good as he is, he's got pitches, obviously, that he can combat lefties or righties, right? I mean, this guy's yeah. – and it's not like 282 and a 331 OBP is terrible. It was still a 750 OPS. It just compares to the 537 OPS that righties had against him. So that's something that he can learn, though, right, if teams are going to stack lefties against him? Yeah, and it's something he wants to learn. You're probably – if the OPS is that low, they're probably just flicking singles, right? And the right, ball's going right, away right. from them. You know, two of his three pitches go away from the lefty, so they can just kind of wait and and stay back and try to go the other way with it. And that's what happens yeah. a lot when you're when you're lefty facing good lefties is is they'll just wait on the breaking ball and they'll just try to flick it to left field. So you have to consciously make them uh, that you have to make them mm-hmm. conscious of the fastball in. So for him, it it's just going to be that's why he's working on the four seamer because if they're going to take their single to left, he needs mm-hmm. to be able to get him out and get him off that pitch down and away. Um, so he wants to bust them up and in with the four seamer and keep them honest. Um, it's it's not a it's not going to be a tough transition for him. <laughs> you know he's he's going to nail it, but and it, you still don't want to give up. Can, no, yeah, they can they stack them like that. No, yeah, right, no. right, right. But the um, more the he, more he faces those lineups, the better he'll get because yeah. he's a smart guy. Yeah, and that's what he said. He said, you know, that's how they're going to they're going to play it, especially given some of the splits last year. So that was good. I'm glad they did it. The Pirates being. Because a lot of what we're too. working on, he said, because a lot of what we're working on right now is to lefties, making sure we get that done. So when it happens during the season, we're ready to go. He gave up yeah, three hits, three runs, <laughs> two walks and two strikeouts, two and two thirds. And the two run homer by Cole Tucker in the third came after Jacob Stallings reached on leadoff single. And again, uh, uh, 
he said it was a two-seamer that he left over. And he said that was the irony. You know, he was trying to get the double play. for The the other times he wasn't even trying, he said. But, and the, and he just left it a little over the plate. So he said he felt yeah. great, felt better than he did when he pitched two scoreless against the Yankees in his first start. Yeah, and he probably, you know, he's, his two-seamer is so good, you have a tendency to go into autopilot on a pitch and just think it's always safe. And go into the mm-hmm. four-seamer so many times, got him back over to – to the glove side of the plate and he leaves it middle, whatever. It's no big deal. Right. Um, but I was surprised that the the pirates did that because it's, you're almost just giving him reps that you don't, you don't yeah. necessarily want yeah. him to have. You don't want him to get better at that. You kind of want to save yeah, those stack lineups for the season. But I'm always surprised. Pirates, when, what are you trying to do? Win the game? <laughs> I mean, come well, on, man. Well, I, well, you do want your guys. I was thinking about that. And I think, you know, the mindset might be you do want your guys to experience success and get a look at this pitcher right. because they're going to face him during the season. So it's kind of, you know, it's up in the air and whether it's a, a good squad. idea or not. But yeah. And they had a but, split squad. So they might have just kept some of their, you know, lefties to do that. But yeah, it could have just worked uh, out said, that yeah. way too. He said, I felt like I pitched a lot better than I did against the Yankees. Everything was a lot crisper. I had a few put-away pitches that that we missed, but that's something that, again, we'll work on and get to the point where I don't miss on those put-aways, and it's hopefully a lot cleaner of a line. I mean, this guy, you know, he's got it. He, he, he's he got – he's nailed it as far as what he needs to do, and that he's never frustrated at all. He, he understands why if he gives up a run or two. He understands exactly why, it seems to me at least. It's a fun game to play when you can throw three – plus pitches and hit spots <laughs> <laughs> it's not very stressful but he seemed in mid-season form with those timely grounders i mean they immediately followed when he put a runner on base the next guy grounds into a double play twice in the first two innings so uh, josh bell uh not a bad hitter with one after a one out walk in the first inning then colin moran after gregory polanco's leadoff hit in the second so good out and he thought He's going to have three more before we're presuming he's the open day starter because it's it's totally illogical for anybody else to be the open day starter, especially with Hamels hurt. But I think even if Hamels was healthy, you would still think Soroka has earned, you know, for this team has earned that starting spot on opening day. But yeah, he's the guy. Yeah. I don't, I don't know who else it would be. It's, he's he carried that. He was, the, he was the guy last year all year. So yeah. I don't know who else you would start and, unless Hamels was healthy, yeah. but he's not going to be. Yeah, if Hamels was healthy, maybe you'd say you'd look at the lineups or whatever, you know, uh, with Arizona, who they're playing. Yeah, we're gonna see a, uh, we're gonna see the Braves face Bumgarner on opening day. How ironic is that? For that'd be crazy. Uh, yeah, after they were Mason so Sanders. Much talk What's his name? <laughs> the Braves going after him. <laughs> Mason Mason. That's Saunders. crazy, man. That was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah. This guy. You talk about giving zero Fs, man. This guy, he hurts himself, you know, a couple of years ago doing something off the field. And then what's he doing? The most dangerous sport in the world during this offseason when he's at a free agent. When he's a free agent, hasn't even signed a contract yet. He's out doing the most dangerous sport in the world, rodeo, and he's bull riding. It's not like he's doing, you know, or what was he doing? He was, uh, was he roping? I wasn't bull riding. That would be even more dangerous. That would be more dangerous. He was steer roping, I think, which is really, you know, that's a, that's that's a dangerous sport, man. It's not like playing golf or, or even riding a motocross bike in the off season. This is this dude's serious, man. He just he's going to do what he's going to do. 
I, mean, I was scared that, to death to go snowboarding. <laughs> this guy's riding bulls. Like, what, with whatever. the free agency, with, with teams bidding for him at the time. It's his life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And he's living it. And I t- hat tip to him for that. Yep. But so anyway, uh, yeah. So so we know Soroka is bright on the uh, on the mound and and way be, wise beyond his years. He's twenty two years old, and he also knows the uh, uh, the uh, correct usage of the word irony. So that's that's admirable as well. So he had two walks Wednesday, both on ball four pitches that were borderline. Uh, Soroka asked us, and he never asked that kind of thing, but he said. You know, off the record, well, you got semi to plate. What'd you think? And then Snit said, Yeah, those were probably strikes. He goes, We're seeing Snit said they're seeing a lot of that down here this spring, close pitches being called balls. So that's where what, the game's trending. On that. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I just, I've heard that umps get penalized for calling um, uh-huh. ball strikes, but not vice versa. So if, if it's borderline, that's you got to lean toward ball. Right, right, right. But that's, uh, that's what so I was saying. Is there's so much advancement in the pitching, it's so hard to hit. I think the game's making somewhat of an effort to make it harder to throw strikes. So guys got to come in the zone and, and you see more offense. The game needs offense. And it might be another thing they're, they're doing, you know, try with, yeah. with everything, with all the other shit, trying to you know speed the game up, change the rules, put a guy on second and everything else. So uh, Soroka should have three more starts before his March 26th season opener at Arizona. Uh, Braves haven't named an OD starter yet, but yeah, like we said, it's him. It's obviously him. If, as long as he's healthy, it's going to be him. Yeah. Uh, and three starts is plenty of time for him to get ready. I mean, he'll go up to four or five innings the next time. He was at 50 pitches or so this time. Um, should be plenty of time. Usually that last, that last start is kind of a, uh, um, guys pull it back, you know, anyway, cause they're ready, you know, and they're yeah. just, uh, so it's more of a, uh, tune up. So he really, he'll be ready. Can, yeah, he'll be ready. Uh, then you had another guy, another couple of guys who Azuna, uh, Marcelo Azuna, the new cleanup hitter, one year, $18 million contract. They held him back a little bit early just because, you know, he doesn't need that many at bats to get ready. But uh, at this point, he's over 13, seven Ks, one walk. He and, uh, I, 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 he and Ronald Acuna, obviously the leadoff hitter, and the two of them combined, and we know how unimportant this is, Eric, but a lot of people are starting to kind of, fans, you know, they, they watch, they look, they look at the stats closely, and they see these two guys are combined two for 32 with one walk and 15 strikeouts this spring. And Acuna has both those hits, a pair of singles. Um, like I said, we know it's just spring training, and these are, especially Ozuna, established hitters. This just means zero to nothing uh, for these guys, but uh can you just say what why uh, veteran <laughs> players come to spring training and these stats just don't they don't get they don't get carried away with this stuff I mean they because they have a track record and they know what they're here for I mean Acuna could go 0 for 75 with 75 I, I, strikeouts and have 15 totally fly, <laughs> he got 15 fly balls in a row bounce off his forehead and I wouldn't be worried about him <laughs> and he's not even established but I agree I mean he's established no. enough we've seen enough of him to, to I yeah. agree with that same with Azuna I mean it, the thing is is you go through these it's it's always hard to look at baseball in really small sample sizes like this but you go through these spurts in the season too whether it's a reliever whether it's a you know an everyday player a bench guy you go through a spurt uh, where you go as a relief pitcher, you might give up runs in three out of four outings, and one of them's a three spot. And all of a sudden, you can look at a four-game four set of 
of appearances and you have a 14 ERA. Are you going to suck right. this year after, you know, nine years in the league? <laughs> Probably yeah. not. But and it's the same thing with hitters. If if Acuña goes 0 for 26 during the season, but he's mm-hmm. but he's been himself all season and this say this happens in July after that 0 for 26 his his average drops 15 points, 20 right. points and he's right. hitting he's hitting 287 now instead of 305, something like that. That's yeah. kind of the hard part about spring training is it's still baseball and you still have little things that are off just a hair in your delivery or your mechanics or your swing and you just stink for a couple of weeks and that's all that's happened and it happens and, all the time yeah. during the season you just don't analyze it because it's 162 games instead of the only I, two weeks you have to look at exactly even freddie a guy who's uh the least likely to go through prolonged slumps even he almost always has a one for 20 during the year at some point yeah and people should look at it as they're going to have those, like you said, during the season. So if they're going to have them during the season, they would be more inclined to have them at the start of spring training when you haven't been facing live pitching all winter. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's also a reason why the guys that usually do hit well at spring training are the guys that are trying to earn a spot so they spent the winter facing live pitching, getting ready for camp as a non-roster right. invitee, or they played winter ball. You know, They're young guys, they're Latin guys that go home and still play winter ball. Those guys are going to be ahead of hitters who just spent the offseason working out getting ready for the season but not facing live pitching we, we used to have um when i was with seattle uh willie bloomquist was a utility guy mm-hmm. every year in spring training he hit like 700 <laughs> it was, <laughs> he just would hit missiles because he was getting uh-huh. all fastballs all spring and every year it'd be this big deal about what he changed in his swing or you know maybe he should be a starting player he's gonna right. take He's going to take right. Brett Boone's job or something like that. And it's like, you know, once the season started, it was back to normal. Willie was a great player. He, I think he got about 10 years in the game, and, and he belonged in the big leagues. But you could never take his spring training number serious because he knew he was getting heaters, and he was just shooting fastballs the other way early in the count. So that's just kind of why spring training, it, it's good. You know, it's if, if somebody's trying to make a team – you you really pay yeah. attention to their numbers, but guys that have a guaranteed spot, they need right. they need, and a lot of times they take advantage of that luxury just to work on things and and work on you know something they suck at, and that could lead right. you to hit zero for twelve, but you did hit a couple balls balls hard the other way, and it carries over the season and helps you. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think it's a coincidence that the guys that usually are drawing headlines in the first couple of weeks, you know. A guy like Peter O'Brien hits three homers and nine at-bats are usually the guys that are fighting for spots, and they have spent the winter preparing for spring training because it is big yeah. to them. They can't come to spring training and suck, or they're not going to have a job. No, and same thing. You know, if the years that I was going to make the team or I needed to make the team um, – I, that first, I was fist pumping game one of spring training. And I, I think you saw Felix, <laughs> Felix kind of hopping off the mound a little bit because the game just means something different. And yeah. I don't, I just don't think it's possible for a veteran to match that intensity. And I don't think it's healthy either to be that intense that mm-hmm. early in the year. If, if you're a guy that's going to be counted on for a six month season, once, once the lights come on. Yeah, I asked Nitt, you know, he's been, of, of course, 40, over 40 spring trainings as a player, coach, or manager. Uh, Asked him, you know, so he knows what happens in in Florida in February and March pretty much stays in Florida. Uh, Or as he put it, we've had guys make teams out of spring training, meaning those, you know, the one hit wonder or the one one hit wonder kind of guys that have, like you were just talking about, Bloomquist. We've had guys make teams teams out of spring training and then it doesn't carry over to the regular season. Uh, Guys that have baseball cards, those don't lie. 
there's really why yep. there's reasons why those things get a little bit long, meaning the baseball card stats. And that's a veteran way of saying a players with a track record, the stats that appear on the back of those baseball cards, the old days, the bubblegum cards, can be expected to have similar results when the games matter during the regular season because they've done it again and again. And like you said, I mean, Acuna's record isn't long, but his talent is huge. And personally, I wouldn't be concerned literally if he went the rest of the spring without a hit because there's right. no <laughs> doubt in my mind that he'll have another great season when the, when the, when the, when the games start to count. There's no doubt in my mind. He's that good. Uh, yeah, that's that's why I'm not worried about him. You know, it's, if he even if he starts off the season in a slump, the talent is so right incredible. I mean, this guy's like it, JD last there's no, year. There's no, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's that talent is going to play, and mm-hmm. I think he made some adjustments with sights last year, where he had been doing something with his swing, and then he'll go off on a a spree where he hits you know 12 homers in a month. It's it's not something I would worry about with him at all. I mean, you put him on the trade block, I'm sure you'd get a lot for him. <laughs> Nobody else is worried about him. <laughs> it's like Other Snit, teams will Snit take a chance. Snit said the important thing about Acuna is he loves the energy he's had since camp open, and that's in workouts, yeah. drills, everything. He said the way he's bouncing around, that's what he looks for. He's not worried. He said, he said sure, he'd like to be swinging a bat better, but Snit is not worried about him and how that might affect him or anything this week. No. Nobody and as is. for Azuna, Azuna is over thirteen with a walk, seven strikeouts. I had uh, Snit said he had a recent discussion with Kevin Seitzer, the hitting coach, about Azuna. Guy's a seven-year veteran, two-time former All Star. He's averaged twenty-eight homers, ninety-four ribbies over the last four seasons, and hit two seventy-seven with an eight seventeen OPS in that four-year span. Snit asked, he said, I asked Seitz because I said I could visualize him being one of those guys that you don't really go by. Anything you see, you know, in spring training, he said he'll let you know where he's at out of out on the field because it's like it's like two. As soon as we leave here, everything's going to everybody's going to forget. It's not going to matter what we had, what we did in spring training, other than the health, because then you'll start getting judged by regular season results. He means, and spring will be way in the rearview mirror. Yeah, I, I remember talking to BMAC about that one year. Um, he'd had shoulder surgery and. He was feeling good at the plate, but he was having a bad spring. And, and, you know, some, some people were asking him a lot of tough questions and, you know, are you okay? Should you be, he was just, he was, he was getting wrapped up in a little bit. And I was like, look, man, in four months, nobody is going to even remember what you did in spring training. No one's even going to remember these. Yeah. And in, in four weeks, you know, this will just be some ran. It's gone. No one will ever think about it again. It won't matter one bit. And he was like, damn, you're right, man. Why am I even wrapped up in this and and he moved on and same thing you know every everybody needs to have that mindset it's it's easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day but it's such a long season man this none of this will even be talked about in a couple weeks i remember what acuna did two years ago because he won because we all thought he deserved to be on the opening day roster but we knew he wouldn't be because they were gonna you know with the roster manipulation service time um but if you asked me honestly last spring if you told me that acuna hit 150 with three homers or you told me that Acuna hit 400 with seven homers. I could really not tell you which of those was more accurate. In other words, I have no <laughs> idea what he did last yeah. spring. No. Yeah. Nobody so, does. You have to look it up. No. <laughs> uh, anyway, which brings me to a conversation I had with Kevin Seitzer down at uh, at the Red Sox Park in Fort Myers, JetBlue Park, on Sunday. 
I really like talking to Seitzer. I think he's one of the best in, in, in baseball at what he does. And and this conversation I had with him told me was another sign, uh, was really a peek into what makes him such an effective teacher and communicator to me I, and why he works with the vast majority of guys. Why, you know, they don't, they don't all click with everybody. But uh, the way he, the, the reason I think is what he is, why he is so good with the majority of guys, and that is he's a. For those who don't know, he's a former player with the Royals, Indians, uh, and a, and a really accomplished hitter himself. I mean, this guy hit well over three hundred a few times. He came up with the Royals when the Royal George Brett was still playing for them, and George was like a mentor to Sites, who couldn't have had a better guy to learn hitting from. You know, Sites already knew was a good hitter in the minors, but he learned some so much stuff from George. And his time with him, and he and he never forgets all this stuff. But anyway, I was talking to Sites, and he told me the last thing that a veteran like an Azuna who comes in to a new team, the last thing he needs is for some coach to tell them what he's doing wrong before that coach has even gotten to know and understand him and build that trust with that player. Yeah, you know, it's it's really I love hearing that, and it makes sense why he's so good after hearing that. I liked him a lot when I was I was with. Atlanta for a couple of years while he was there. And, you know, it's so easy to just want to coach and want to do mm-hmm. something. And, and a lot of coaches just want to coach and they want, they want to make an impact. And you you get into this position where players are, players wind up just telling them that what they're doing feels better. So they'll leave them alone. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, like Oh yeah, it felt, yeah. So you just say, well, it felt way better. And then you just make sure you get a couple knocks that day or, or put up a zero because when you have a coach that wants to overcoach like that, um, you don't, a lot of times you don't get to work on yourself uh, and figure out things that you need to work on. And, and this early in camp, um, it's, it's pretty easy to just say he'll figure it out and, and get to know him before he does that. So I love hearing that. That's, I agree with so, that a thousand percent. So Seitz said he's taken the same approach with Azuna that he did with J.D., a year, Josh Donaldson a year ago, and any other veterans that come in, or just newcomers that come in, uh, but especially, you know, veteran established guys. He said, uh, you know, J.D.'s strong-minded. Some would say he's stubborn. But when J.D. joined the Braves on, on a one-year deal a year ago, he came in, he was struggling, putting together, or Seitz saw him struggling. But Seitz said, look, he said, he sat back, watched, and listened plenty before he even started to point out anything that he thought JD might want to work on. And even then, JD was reluctant to do it. And Seitz at a certain point just said, hey, look, I'm just trying to help you out and give you some tips, but I understand if you want to do it your way. But Seitz told me the quote was when you come to a new organization and you've got a new staff and you're trying to get comfortable and get ready for the season. It's not fair to all at all for somebody to just go start making suggestions, even until there's been enough time given, especially established guys who've had a lot of success. You got to give them a chance, he said. And I asked him for his first impressions of Azuna. It was funny because he was just a positive. He said, he's got some serious hand speed, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, he does. He noticed that right away. I, you know, the, yep. the thing the thing that's that's crazy for me is it's a lot of times you'll coaches see everything. Right. And a lot of times they'll just, the I, the best coaches I feel like are the guys that just have it ready and they wait for the player to come to them. And sometimes you'll go to the coach and you'll be like, Hey, are you, are you seeing anything? You know, I feel like I might be doing this and they'll right. just be like, here you go. I got a whole list for you. Let's go get to work. <laughs> and, and when the player's willing and wanting to work and, and open-minded about it, you're so much more accepting of it than if you feel great and just had, you know, a lot of times you can feel great 
as a pitcher and you give up like two bloop singles and you walk somebody and and then you make one bad pitch and it's a double, right? And if yeah. you have a coach come to you and say, well, here's why and here's what you need to do, here's what you need to work on, you might be reluctant because you might think, man, I threw the ball really well today and I, I didn't I didn't deserve that outing I had. But when you struggle, 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 um, and it's you know it's a fine line because you can't let your guys struggle that long. But once you've struggled a few times, you're like, shit, you know, I'm, I'm really just not right right now. Let me go check in with the pitching coach or the hitting coach and see what they're seeing. And they already know. They already have the answer lined up. They already have a plan for you. And you get right to work and fix it. Um, I, I think that's kind of sights. I think that's how he approaches it is, is he just waits for, for the guys to come to him. And he's got and he's already got a lot of suggestions and answers lined up. Yeah, I said, uh, yeah, because I posted a video of Azuna and BP, and his, and he looked pretty ragged. His, his feet were moving, you know, he's kind of flailing, he's kind of spinning a little bit. And so Sight said, you know, he's got serious hand speed, that's for sure. And I said, well, you know, what about all the movement in the box, the feet slide, and seemingly out of sync moving parts to his swing? And basically Sight said, patience, grasshopper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's, and, uh, and this is kind of where Snid or, or Donaldson <laughs> might have added, look at the back of the baseball card. Yeah. <laughs> because, and Sight said, you know, it's the same with him as everybody else. He's got to get his time. He's got to get his legs underneath him. I don't start talking to guys until I get to know and get get to know them and get to watch them. And they get some ABs and see where things start to come around, where they're getting their their timing back. And we'll evaluate based on where he's at at that point. And then he added, on again, on a positive note, he's got a short, compact swing, though. Boy. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> he really does. His bat speed's incredible. So that that's yeah. another reason why you're just not worried about the guy because when you have that kind of bat speed, he's just off on his timing yeah. a little bit. And that's what spring training's for. So you'll get it. Yeah. He said uh Site said, We've had lots of conversations. We talk a lot and I want to get to know them them to get to know me. The biggest thing as a coach is building a relationship and building trust. And you have to do that the right way. So yeah, yeah. I think these the Braves got these hitters in good hands with this guy. He's not going to screw any of them up. They're not going to rebel and you know and tell each other, "I'm not listening to that idiot." And, and just—it's so smart. It's it's so smart what he's doing. That's why hitting you know, coach and pitching coaches stay around. The ones that you know move around from year to year and can't keep a job. You wonder, man. I'm telling you, there's some pitching coaches that, and I think it's the number one thing they do wrong. But they'll watch an entire bullpen and. The first pitch, like they might just have something they don't like personally about your delivery, but the first time mm-hmm. you miss a spot or hang a breaking ball, they they step right in and start making changes. Yeah, you know, it's that's yeah. the last thing you want to do, especially with established big leaguers that, you know, they have their own progress, their own process of 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 getting their timing and themselves ready for the season anyway. And I think it's just so smart that, you know, having played, I think helps him a lot. I think you know, going through it himself. That's yeah. something that players always respect too, haven't played, especially at the big league level. Um, but that's what gives you that understanding of it and and mm-hmm. just remembering how hard the game is. Um, and, you know, you got time. He knows he can be patient, but I just think it's so smart. And it makes sense why he's such a good hitting coach here in that approach. And that's what, uh, you know, I think that's one of the big reasons Snit is, has been successful as a manager while the players love him because he's he was a kind of a frustrated player himself, got up to like double-A level. So yeah. as a guy who wasn't successful, you know, at the major league level, he knows how hard the game is because he failed. Yeah. He couldn't get as far as he wanted to get. So I think those are – it's not coincidence – that the guys who were not great players themselves, most of them stopped in the minor leagues, are the ones that make the best coaches and managers because they have more patience than a guy like, like when Ted Williams tried to manage or when he tried to be a hitting coach. It's hard for those guys to do it because they can't put themselves in the shoes of the average guy. 
Yeah, Ed, you know it's it's Chipper. Would he's probably the best hitting coach in the game for for me. Yeah. And he it was it right. did seem easy for him. It's just different. Every personality. He's different. I think the yeah he's different. But I think the main thing is. Um, you know, a lot of failed, a lot of guys that didn't make it to the big league level almost have a little bit of um, a jealousy toward the guys that are there and they lose respect for them and they don't think they're working hard because they worked yeah. harder and stuff like that. You can get kind of caught up in that. It's just all that matters. And that's what's so good ways, at. Then. It can work both ways in my mind. Uh, but, yeah. you know, the most important thing is never forgetting how hard the game is because it looks easy on TV. It looks easy from the dugout. But, you get in that box or get on the mound, man. It's a it's a different animal and it's a really tough game. And all the good coaches, every single good coach that I've been around is fully aware of how hard the damn game is. And you will hear Snit more than any other manager yes. I know will comment about how hard these guys work and how he yeah. marvels at coming in and seeing Marcakis in the weight room at two in the afternoon and how these guys come to the ballpark and the thing he admires most is they come to the ballpark with the same attitude every day to go in and do their work and everything no matter if they're winning or losing so he's he's always pointing that out and that's the hardest part you know it turns into groundhog's day and and the guys yeah. that can continually put in all that little work are the guys that that stick around the game and I, that's what i love about snit is that he just he really respects what he's that how tough the game is and and what he's watching and and he just you know he said that more than any any manager or even coach you know in all my years around him he always said that is I'm never going to forget how hard this game is. You don't got to worry about that. And I, I really respect that about him. I, th I think he learned that from the master too, even though Bobby got to yeah. the major leagues as a top prospect, you know, it didn't work out for him like it was supposed to. And Bobby, as much as anybody, you know, whether you, you know, whether you made it or not, it's, it's yeah. just about remembering how hard the game is. Yeah. Man. It's a hard yeah. game. So much failure. Um, by the way, uh, we talked We talked about how overly long spring training is. I think everybody agrees for just about everyone other than starting pitchers who need to build up the arm strength. But it was interesting. I, I did ask sites about that. You know, having there is one other benefit to it. And I asked sites about, you know, having six or seven weeks to kind of get to know these guys, you know, like Azuna and people like that. Yeah. And whether that's beneficial, you know, having that extra time is such a leisurely pace down here. And he said, yep, absolutely. He said – his quote, he said, it gives us time, especially with the new guys. Otherwise, I'd have to be flying all over the place in the offseason to try and make that happen, to get to know these guys. He said, but it's this is a very relaxed atmosphere. Snit takes care of them as far as not taxing them too much too early physically. So it's a good thing. Six weeks is a good thing. The only time you wish it was shorter is when you feel like everybody's ready to go and ready to play. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, it's, I never thought of that. I never really yeah. I never really thought of it from a coaching uh, right. standpoint of you know you got time to learn your guys and, and figure them out i know the players are ready after uh, a yeah. lot <laughs> i'll get to know the coach during the season and let you know hopefully i'm just putting up numbers and i don't need it but yeah it's good for him yeah those are isolated cases yeah yeah um well they got three more weeks to get ready three weeks from opening day we're exactly three weeks until march 26th opener at arizona it's going to be here before you know it so that should be about six or seven more shows before then and we are glad you guys are listening. We're going to have a lot more stuff, and we hope to have uh, the previously mentioned Chipper on here again pretty soon. Chipper, this is the call-out, the bat signal, man. We want you to come <laughs> back and talk a little bit. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. But So this is it. 755 is real, and uh, we got another weekend of, of games coming up, and we'll talk about it on Tuesday with you. But great having you. All right. Thanks, Eric. See you next week. Bye.